Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to another amazing, and I promise you, this is going to be an amazing podcast interview with Michael Sonbert, who is a best-selling author, speaker, performance coach, educator, and the founder and CEO of Skyrocket Education and Rebel Culture. I'm reading this, but I, w- I want to get it all right. He's used his own story of overcoming addiction, despair, an unfulfilled potential to reclaim his life and is committed to leading what he has termed a rebel culture revolution, which we're going to get into. Michael is committed to helping business leaders get uncomfortable. And I love that word. We got to rattle people's cages, get uncomfortable so that together with their teams, they can grow thriving, impactful, purposeful organization. Michael proclaims culture over everything. And and we hear lots of business leaders talk about that. Michael breaks this down, and I'm excited to get into that. A bit more on on who he is, because you got to hear this. Skyrocket has coached educational leaders from eight countries and over 100 cities around the world, impacting millions of students. He's grown the company, along with his brilliant team, into a multi-million dollar entity. Obsessed with both personal and professional development, Michael has dedicated the last 20 years to coaching, partnering with and researching leaders across many fields, including aviation, pharmaceuticals, fashion, healthcare, insurance, technology, and of course, education. Michael currently lives in New York City with his wife and three children, including his son, Teddy, who has autism. Michael is committed to ensuring that all children with disabilities are accepted for who they are and have the same opportunities as their neurotypical and able-bodied peers. He sits on the board of the autism nonprofit organization, Families for Inclusion. And also Michael does some pretty cool stuff like year-long fitness challenges. Gosh, you'll tell us about this, but last year he did 100,000 push-ups and ran 221 miles. Oh, I get it for the year 2021. Dang it. I was out there with you, Michael. Did you did you see me? I didn't see you. No. Where oh, where were you? Probably way way behind you. So <laughs> oh, so so this year he's running 100 10k's. Okay, so we're going to get into that and and a whole lot of other things. Oh, and you also sing in a in a rock band. Is that true? So yeah, that I've been a rock and roll singer for 30-ish years, and my buddies and I decided to, we did an autism benefit show right before the pandemic, and we decided to form a new band. We haven't played since then, not no, nowhere formal, but we do uh, strap on the acoustic guitars every once in a while and make a lot of noise, uh, but yes, that's true. That's awesome. You know, somebody who is so well-rounded. So you, you got the family life, you have that beautiful son with autism. And so that's pulled you into that world as well. The whole fitness side of it. Cause sometimes you see leaders who they, they've got business and that's all they know. That's all they talk about. I've been to those dinner parties and you just want to get away from those people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you want, you want to have some real conversations like, okay, so you you're successful in business. You make all this money, but what else, what else? And so that, you have all this other stuff going on, just makes you interesting. And that's so cool. So, and I have to tell our, our listeners, 
Today is actually the first day that you and I have even chatted, but I have been following you for a while. My, how did I find you, Michael? Or, or somehow you just ended up in my daily email and I just started reading and reading and, and getting intrigued. And then I started visiting your site and then somehow I tracked you down. You immediately said yes to doing this interview, which also says a lot about you. You, you never came back and said, well, who are you? Why do you want me? You just said, sure, let's do it. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for so many reasons. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, I don't know how we wound up in your inbox. I will say that when you emailed me, I looked you up. Uh, so I did say yes quickly. But when I found out who you were, I was like, oh, this is a very interesting opportunity. And uh, I was excited for the chance to talk to you. You know, you say this is the first time we've spoken in person, but we have communicated through email probably a dozen or so times just, you know, talking about content and leadership, et cetera. So I feel as if I know you and it's not our first time chatting, even though it, it technically is. Well, the emails that you send out on a daily basis, I think I even harassed you one weekend saying you're making me look bad because you're still putting stuff out over the weekend and I'm not working <laughs> this weekend. Uh, but the stuff that you put out daily and I'm and I'm telling our listeners it it happens daily. And so if you're not receiving these emails, we'll let you know how to make that happen. But you know, I'm reading the content and there's these little snippets that I can read in a minute or two minutes, but each one of them is, is profound. This is not fluff stuff. This is like down and deep and, and you are to the point and you, you don't mix words. As we said, you're okay to uh, shake people up a little bit and make people uncomfortable. But before we get into any of that, you've got a very intriguing personal story. If you don't mind sharing with us what that's all about. Yeah, happily. Uh, in my teens, I started suffering from panic attacks. And back then, nobody really knew what they were. So at 15 years old, I, I thought I was uh, dying. And that's pretty scary. And uh, the way that manifested is that I missed out on a lot of things that other high school kids didn't miss out on, things like parties and even learning to drive, I learned, uh, you know, a year or two after uh, my friends and missed a lot of dating and things like that. I missed a lot of those things. And so luckily I got therapy and uh, did a lot of work around mindset and things like that. But what happened was in my early 20s or really my late teens, I discovered that all the work I was doing around anxiety and on trying to calm myself and on really working to avoid panic taking over, that it was way easier to do that if I was under the influence and that I was able to calm myself much more easily. You know, I'd, I'd taken a few plane rides overseas and, you know, just gripping white knuckles, panicked for you know 10 hours 12 hours not that the plane was going to crash which was what most people might be afraid of but more that i was trapped here and what if i have a a panic attack and nobody will understand and they'll laugh at me and what will we do if we're over the middle of the ocean and i discovered that substances just made all that stuff go away and it made it go away right away and so what started as something that was um for medicinal purposes led to me not being able to you know, get behind the wheel of a car unless I had two glasses of vodka. And then, you know, you can't obviously live your life like that. So then I'd find myself at eight o'clock at night, blurry eyed, slurring, and discovered that 
cocaine was a great way to balance out the alcohol. And so I found myself for most of my 20s in this cycle of alcohol, cocaine, women, alcohol, cocaine, women, and just finding just finding like the next party, the next, uh, I, I wouldn't even call it like adventure as much as like the next place I could just, you know, disappear and not feel any pain. So I wasn't the best person in my 20s, which is uh, <laughs> something I've I've had to reconcile over the years, but I don't think I'd be where I am today if I didn't go through those pieces. Isn't that interesting how the stories of our childhood and the things that we struggled with and suffered through, which were just devastating back then, we can today draw a line of, oh yeah, that experience took me to here, that painful experience took me to here, and we can draw that direct line to how we're successful today, how we're better off today because of what we went through. Not that mine is is the same, but you know, I was laid up for a year from being blinded in in my right eye. So I had surgeries, couldn't go to school. And so to, to keep me entertained, my parents bought me a piano. So I taught myself sitting at home by myself for a long time. I taught myself how to play the piano, long story short. I eventually became the piano player for a, a friend of mine who was a singer whose name was Sean Ingeman, who then eventually became Larry King's wife. And then Larry King wrote the forward for my book. So there you go. So had I not been blinded at 14, Larry King would not have written the forward for my book. So there you go. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, it's, yeah I think for me, I, I looked at this thing that I looked at as a curse for so long wound up being my kind of my greatest blessing. I think it taught me very young about just how important time is and being present is. I I said to a psychologist when I was 15, it was a Tuesday. I remember it like it was yesterday. He said, how are you feeling? I said, I just wish it was Friday. Um, I just, I, I wanted to be out of school. I wanted to be away from the fear, away from the judgment, away from just the feeling that my whole world was collapsing. And he told me, you know, Michael, I hear you, but be careful about wishing your whole life away. He goes, you wish for enough Tuesdays to become Fridays. You wish for enough winters to become summers. You'll turn around and most of your life will be behind you. You won't have been present for any of it. And I think that that's the type of thing I never would have learned. And even to this day, I mean, you ask anybody in my life, like you find me on a freezing cold February morning with sideways rain and, and wet socks because I stepped in a puddle and asked me how things are. And I'm like, they're amazing. Everything's amazing. And it's not fake. It's because I, I believe that because it's like, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be able to do what I get to do. And so really to your point, and so many of these things wind up being blessings, even if at the time they feel, you know, a million miles high. I mean, I already love that message. Have you heard of that? I don't know if there's a book or a movement called 18 Summers. Have you heard of that? I have not. The whole idea is that as parents, we get 18 summers if we're lucky. Yeah. And, and so yeah. when I think, you know, because you say, gosh, I can't wait until my daughter is, you know, in middle school. I can't wait until my daughter can drive. I can't. No, I can totally wait. I want all of this to slow down because I'm only going to get 18 summers. And and I like what you're saying that that you've taught yourself or you've learned that you got to enjoy every single moment. This, how easy is that for you from day to day? How much do you have to keep on reminding yourself Come on, be present and, and enjoy this. That's a great question. And, and to your point about the 18 summers, I don't know about the book, but I, I was in 
New Smyrna Beach, Florida, a couple of months ago, and there was a billboard on on the side of a restaurant that said it was for children, and it said, uh, "Hey, kids, you only have eighteen summers. Take advantage of them." And it blew me away. I took a picture of it. I shared it with my wife when I got home. So, so I'm all in. But, but to your uh, most recent question, you know, I do like a gratitude every morning. It's very helpful. I have an alarm that goes off on my phone about five times a day to remind me to breathe. Sometimes that's annoying if I'm away from my phone, but it's got to be, I mean, all these things have to be engineered. I don't believe that things happen by accident. I started both my companies. There are intentional moves that we can make on a, a daily, you know, hourly, minutely basis to change our mindset, change how we're feeling. And so I don't know, most days, I mean, I think it's pretty automatic at this point. Most days I feel, I feel pretty good. Yeah, it's but it's all intentional. It's not, I've engineered it so it feels like that. God, I love that word. You you engineered it. Yeah, it's, it's not by accident. You planned for it to be that way. You know, pe- people will listen to a, a an accomplished piano player and say, "Gosh, I'd I'd give anything to be able to play like you." Really? Would you give up eighteen years of your life playing six hours <laughs> yeah. a day? Would Would you give up that? So it was engineered. You planned for that to happen. I'm curious to know what is your your every morning gratitude routine look like? Yeah, it's the same thing. I say, uh, thank you. Thank you. I say, thank you for my amazing wife. And I'm speaking to the universe and spirits and I'm not a, uh, not like a traditionally religious person, but I, I do feel like I'm connected to things around me. So I, I thank the universe for my amazing wife and for my three children. I thank uh, the universe for our perfect health. I thank the universe for my skyrocketing businesses, pun intended. And then I close it with uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for this perfect day where I can accomplish anything, where I will accomplish everything, where I will win. Uh, my mindset will win, actions will win, uh, and then I'm, I'm really intentional about how I'm going about things. So Michael, before we jump into some of this business stuff, this leadership culture stuff, you are also a teacher. You were a teacher in, in Philadelphia. Can you talk about that experience? Because I know that that was also uh, pivotal for where you are today. Absolutely. I, uh, yeah, I taught, I started as a special education teacher. I eventually transitioned into general ed, teaching English to uh, middle schoolers, mostly writing. I loved it, was working down in South Philadelphia and some of the best years really of, of my life and the most challenging job on earth. I mean, uh, somebody once asked me why I left teaching and I replied, because it's too hard, um, which, uh, you know, I mean, look, I say to teachers all the time, I mean, you have the hardest job in the world. It's like trying to file papers while falling out of an airplane. I mean, there's just that much happening at one time. Um, but what it uh, taught me, um, a couple of things. One is, you know, when we talked about our both our kind of our collective pasts, and uh, my past was uh, in some ways, even if my students didn't know what I'd been through, and in fact they didn't, because I would never share that with teenagers. But they could see that I that I had a credibility that not all of my colleagues had uh, very early on, and it helped me with kids who were you know tough as nails at least externally, and who we're looking to to test me and to test the other adults from the the second we all connected, and so that was a, kind of a, an interesting 
as you mentioned earlier, a, a blessing about some of what I what I'd gone through. But really, the other thing that you know, working in in, in education taught me. You know, I I mentioned my twenties and how it was very much about me and what what I needed and what I wanted and whatever needed to kind of satisfy me in the moment and to have you know and I, I taught about 100 students at, at a time you know throughout the course of a year not in one class obviously but to have 100 or 125 children who are depending on you who are putting their faith in you who are looking to you for direction even if it's just around writing although i would, i'd argue that my students look to me for more than that in terms of direction man what a paradigm shift for me as a human to have the realization that hey man this is way bigger than you and to get a taste of what impact really feels like and what is it like to change somebody's behavior even if you're just teaching a a 13-year-old, how to not start a sentence with a conjunction, right? Um, but to see that I could change people's behavior. And I loved it. And I love it to this day, being able to do that for folks. That makes me so happy to hear that because I'm always recruiting business leaders to come into my schools to talk. And they're like, what would I talk about? Those are cosmetology students. I know nothing about beauty or fashion. Why? First of all, you're a mentor. If you have one day of experience in the world of business, that means that you could be a mentor. And the, the, the real reason is I know what it's going to do for that leader. Yeah. I, I started in the salon business in the beauty industry and then later got into the school business. And I tell people all the time, had I not gotten into the school business, meaning had I not had and continue to have that experience in the world of education, meaning dealing with students every single day, you know, I would have lost interest in the beauty industry. I would have lost interest in just being in business only. It's, it's, it's being connected to students that just drives my passion. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I love the mindset there. And I, I think that particularly around like what it's going to do for the adult, I, I don't know that people realize when they get into teaching or even when people look at it from another career or another or different lens that just how rewarding it is, right? And this idea that for so many of us, we're not necessarily going to have an impact on people uh, forever. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I say it all the time, look, if you work at a bank, you people give you the money, you put it in the account, that's fine. I'm not putting down anybody who works at a bank. It's a great gig. Awesome. There's something about being able to say, hey, like there are hundreds of people out in the world, thousands of people out in the world who I had an impact on and not for my own ego or for my own self, or because I have this grandiose sense of who I am. No, but because I've been able to support them when they needed it. And I've been able to potentially provide for them when they needed something provided. So it's really, a, it's just an incredible uh, paradigm through which to see the, the, the world and to see things in general. Congratulations. Thanks, man. So listen, uh, yeah, there is that talk about the great resignation and in one of your daily emails you wrote that 65 percent of the current workforce is actively looking for a new job uh, so there is maybe talk about that absolutely and maybe a lot of people are using that as the excuse it's like well people are leaving my employee because you know everybody's leaving everywhere it's not my fault it's just that's what's happening nowadays and, and you know that that's not entirely true or mostly not true but you talk about 
helping business leaders get uncomfortable with culture over everything. Oh my gosh, that needs to be a poster. That needs to be the <laughs> theme of your next training in an office a meeting that needs to be on t-shirts, culture over everything. Can you talk about that? <laughs> yeah, well, look, I mean, I want to start off by saying the I'm not discounting the effect that the pandemic has had on businesses. It's it's very real. I don't want listeners to think that I'm trying to minimize that. What I'm suggesting is that based on our research and based on data and surveys and based just anecdotally on the work we do, the pandemic didn't cause the problems in the workplace. They, in most cases, revealed them. And people got to a point where they said, hey, you know what? I'm actually not going to tolerate a, a boss who doesn't provide me feedback or who communicates late or who doesn't value my opinion or who doesn't you know, trust me to make decisions. I'm just not going to tolerate that anymore. I've, I've seen other options and those options are, are better. For the, for the leaders, and I, by the way, I, I get that, right? No, nobody should stay somewhere where they're not fulfilled. But for leaders, what we're trying to do is to get them to turn the, you know, the microscope inward and say, sure, this is a real thing and there are real challenges here. Let's find places where you have actual control. You can't, you're amazing, but you can't control a global pandemic. I'm sorry, you just can't. But what can you control, right? So, you know, I just talked to a leader this morning who was telling me that they don't necessarily have the right hires. They're not like, they don't have the best hires on their team that they've hired poorly. So well, talk to me about your process. And what was revealed is that they don't talk anything about the organization's vision or values in the hiring process. They don't talk anything about what the day-to-day is going to look like or, or what we prioritize here, how we work with each other and how we interact. What they do is when they give somebody their offer letter, they attach their vision and values to the offer letter and then say, hey, here's your offer. By the way, are these vision and values aligned with your way of thinking, your way of being? <laughs> so it's after the fact. <laughs> and it's already, it's got the money on it already. Oh, and I gosh. said, listen, I said, you know, uh, maybe the person's aligned, but if the salary feels right, folks will say, they'll say a lot of things and they might not necessarily mean it. And so that's a great example just from a few hours ago of somebody who, is not prioritizing culture the way they should be. I want to be crystal clear here for you win and for your audience, and you know this from reading my, my daily culture shots, the, the way to build culture is not to lay off or to be like Mr. You know, nice guy or nice gal, to be a pushover, to let people do whatever they want. Culture is not built through pizza parties and, and gift cards. It's not. It's built through a sense of purpose, through being really clear on what we're trying to accomplish, for feeling the impact of the work we're we're doing, right? And of, of, of knowing that my work is appreciated, that I'm gonna get feedback, I'm gonna be held accountable. You know, 91% of the current workforce when wants to be held more accountable, they think their bosses can do a better job holding them and everybody on their teams accountable. That's not a, a recipe for laying off people or for going easy. In fact, it's the opposite, but it has to be done with care. It has to be done with an understanding that these people have put they put their faith in me. They've spending 33% of their lives working for me. I need to get out of my head and stop making this about me. It's not about me. It's about them. They've said, I trust you. I believe in what you're trying to accomplish. I'm going to spend a third of my life working for you. And that time needs to matter. Leaders, we talk about this 
the rebel culture all the time. We've got to make that 33% matter. We've got to make it really relevant for folks, really impactful. So culture over everything, the results follow, but but far too many leaders are are trying to fast track the money and the dollars and the contract. And they've got a team who's not aligned, who talks smack about each other, will do the bare minimum if, if nobody's watching them. And that's not a recipe for success. It just isn't. This is just perfect. And I like what you say that that culture isn't about beanbag chairs and pizza parlors and and just being super nice to, to everybody without speaking up and holding them accountable. My, my book, Be Nice or Else, is not about not having an opinion or a voice or becoming a doormat. That's what people think that being nice is all about. And yeah. the fact that you're getting into the value of accountability, isn't that funny? We think or bosses think or leaders or mentors think that if I hold them accountable, if I call them on it, that somehow they're going to get upset and they're going to leave. And what you're saying is that that's what people are looking for. They're they're looking for boundaries and accountability and input. Yeah, I mean, as long as the expectations are clear on the front end, what people don't want is to get random misaligned feedback. That uh, And on Monday, it's different than on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, it's different than on Wednesday, right? That causes employees to be skittish and frustrated. They start to lose faith in the boss. They start to think, well, look, I'm either going to leave here or most often I'm going to stay here and I'm going to be successful in spite of the person who's in charge. I'm going to tolerate them when they come in. And then the second they're gone, I'm going to go back to doing it however I was doing it. And so accountability has to be preceded by the expectations. Very often, leaders won't set expectations. They think it makes them mean. They think folks are going to be turned off by it. They think they'll be seen as like a micromanager. In fact, what everybody's telling us and what the polls and the research are showing is that folks want to know what's expected here. And when we don't provide that as leaders, what happens is folks are, are now left to their own devices. They act in whatever way they think makes the most sense. A lot of times that's great. A lot of times it's not. But everybody, everybody listening to this has experienced being on a team where you're like, I'm working harder than everybody here, right? Like, I see that guy come in late every day. How come nobody's saying anything to him? Can I start coming in late every day? Can I start missing deadlines, right? And we start, and when, when that conversation starts to happen, that is code red for a leader, right? It's code red for a team. When folks start to get into those weird conversations about what everybody else is doing, right? That becomes really toxic. And that's started by, and it's perpetuated by leaders who don't say, hey, here's what really matters here, right? And I want your opinion. I want to know, I want everybody to be involved in the process, but like, here's what we need to prioritize here. You know, so for instance, on my teams, I'm maniacal that we're on time for things. And folks on my team know that if they're a minute late, I'm going to have a conversation with them and they're not going to be in trouble. And I'm going to say, hey, what's going on? Like, you know, you, we, the meeting was at nine, you got there at 9.02. Like, what, what's up? You know, tell me what happened, right? Well, I mostly never have to do that because if folks are going to be even 30 seconds late, they'll text me or they'll text our director of operations. They'll say, hey, I'm, I'm running behind. And, and there are other things like that, but I'll use that as one example. And the reason why that's so important to me and our teams is because to me, showing up on time is the easy stuff. And if we can't figure that out, we are not going to be able to do the hard stuff, right? Like, we've got to be able to do the hard stuff well. Like, our partners are counting on us for that. So we've got to be able to do the easy stuff. And I write about, you know, like on an airplane, the hard stuff for the, the pilots and for the flight crew is the actual flying of the plane. It, it shouldn't be people finding their seats, right? It shouldn't be people boarding, right? And so, but, but far too often, 
leaders don't, in their minds, they don't say, well, what really matters here? What are we going to be really intentional about? And what is the stuff maybe we're not going to care about as much? What's the stuff that we're going to say, hey, you know what? Like, that doesn't really matter here as much. And when that doesn't happen, there are no expectations set. And people act however they, they feel they need to in the moment. A lot of times that's problematic. Wow. One of our uh, golden rules, we had this code of conduct. Uh, and there are 13 golden rules. And, and number one is be on time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I knew I liked you. It's yeah. awesome. <laughs> well, number two is always be in a great mood. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And for us, that's, I mean, ours is probably find a way. I mean, we on any of our teams, you're not allowed to just say, I don't agree with this thing, or I think that this is going to be problematic. You're allowed to disagree. It has to be followed up with some sort of solution and some sort of problem solving, because we're not just going to drop a hand grenade in somebody's lap. We're going to say like, hey, I have a, I think I have a better idea. I'd love to talk to you about it. Here's Mike. what it is. And that's great. Michael, I'm going to hunt you down. You and I are going to share the stage with you. That's my new fantasy is to, to travel speaking <laughs> with you because gosh, we are just you know so aligned in, in so many ways, which by the way, is not the reason why I wanted to do this interview because I want people to rattle my cage and, and tell me that I'm an idiot as well. You know, I need people to, to tell me that on a regular basis, right? Yeah, me too, man. I, I encourage my team to, to tell me my ideas are, are terrible. We have actually done some practices where I've proposed really like intentionally bad ideas. Like, hey, we're going to coach people on roller skates so we can be like really <laughs> fast moving around their offices. Everybody come up with three reasons why this is a terrible idea, which of course it is a terrible idea. But just practice in like tell the boss that their idea is not great, but come up with <laughs> solutions, right? That is awesome. That's a great activity. So good for you. So um, I heard a statistic that 50% of people who quit their jobs did so to get away from their boss. Have you heard that as well? Is, is that yeah. being true for you? Yeah. Then, I mean, I see the, the numbers, um, you know, it varies between, you know, 40 and, and 60% from what I've seen. I think what stands out to me is that only about 25% leave for more money. And I think that that's very telling that at least double the amount of people are leaving their job because of their of their boss than the folks who are leaving because they want more money. What a telling statistic right there. Oh my gosh, that that people need to just write that down that that 25% are leaving for more money. That's such an important important thing to understand. Wow. Yeah. So define culture. If you were to define culture, what what does culture mean? Culture for me in in, you know, 15 seconds or less is the collective feeling and the collective way of operating uh, that a team has. Just what are we trying to accomplish here and how do we act in the attainment of trying to accomplish that thing? By the way, I'm writing this down. So, so everybody, I'm doing a lot of work right now, okay? I'm trying to interview him. I'm trying to stay on track here. I'm checking our time. And I'm taking notes. So uh, how do we act? Okay, got it. So a couple of other questions. You you say that leaders are are suffering right now and, and you have some solutions on what we can do about it. Yeah, I just, I ask leaders all the time. I, I ask leaders, usually when I first meet them, is like, what does your Friday night drive home feel like? Now, not everybody, some people might work in hospitality, so they might be driving home Sunday morning at at 9 a.m., but but the point is the same. What does it feel like when you're driving home after a week of work? 
Um, are you feeling like, hey, uh, we accomplished everything we set out to? Folks are working really well together. I feel super empowered. I feel like I have the respect and the belief of my team and so on. Or is it like, hey, we didn't accomplish what we wanted to. I don't actually even know, quite frankly, what we're trying to accomplish. I mean, I know we want to have a great business. I know we want to make money, but I don't really know on a daily basis exactly what we're trying to accomplish. There are missed opportunities for me to provide feedback for people. There are missed opportunities for me to celebrate people on my team. You know what? Quite frankly, I'm walking around the room and and I'm walking around the office. I'm walking around the building and I don't feel like I have everybody's respect. And I don't feel like people necessarily think I'm the right person for the job, et cetera, et cetera. And overwhelmingly, people are in in some version of that bucket. And sometimes they're hesitant to admit that. And that kind of goes to one of my earlier points about what we're afraid of and whether we're uh, willing to admit that we're afraid of it. See, the, the thing that win is, is so many books out there and so many programs are starting with execution. And execution is an incredibly important part of building a strong culture, being a great leader, being successful, et cetera, right? I mean, you talked about becoming an expert at playing the piano earlier. And at some point, you actually have to put your finger on the keys. You can study all you want. You can uh, take all the lessons you want. You could, you could listen to the greats. You can read all the books. At some point, you have to execute and, and put your finger on the keys. But what I found is one of the biggest struggles is that we're asking people to execute on things that they don't believe they can execute on, that their execution will be accepted by their teams, that they don't even believe they deserve to execute on because so many leaders don't even think they deserve the role they have. And they're in this constant conversation with themselves about why they're the wrong person for the job, right? So we have to start with the mindset. We have to start with what a leader believes, what they believe about themselves. A leader the other day told me, you know, I said, hey, are you worried that this isn't going to work out? She said, I'm, I'm not afraid of anything, which to me is the biggest tell that somebody's terrified of everything. Uh, <laughs> and I said, I said, you're not afraid of anything. I go, what if you let everybody down? Um, what if like you can't pay back your investors? And I went on for like six different things. And she was like, actually, I'm terrified of all those things. Like, great. Got it. Wow. Right. But the problem is, is she can't execute if she's got those things in her head and she's not addressing them. She still can be afraid of those things, but she's got to get clear on that on the front end. What are the actual mindset challenges that you're facing? What are the things that you are telling yourself that are not going to allow either I don't deserve this job or people won't listen to me or everybody's on to me as a famous one, right? Like until we address those mindsets, it becomes very hard to execute. And as you, you probably know, you know, poor execution leads to hesitancy, right? I did a thing. It didn't work out. I'm embarrassed by it. People saw it. Now, like, are they going to trust me going forward? Hesitancy leads to inaction. And which is why so many leaders are in places where you and I know the culture's struggling and people are suffering, but they're not doing anything about it because they don't think that they're the person to do it. So we start with the mindset and we go from there. That's great. You know, um, <laughs> maybe you think this too. I know because I ask a lot of leaders and, and business owners that they have the same sense that one day they're going to figure us out. <laughs> I think that all the time. I never went to college. One day they're going to check my resume and realize that I'm not qualified to do this. They're going to escort <laughs> you out of the building. Exactly. They're going to tell everybody. They're going to apologize to everybody that they had to right. tolerate your leadership for so long. Right. I mean, look, it's okay. It's yeah. out there. We all feel that. Right. Yeah. 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 
got to admit it. So give us an example of something that a leader would be afraid to execute. Because I, I love what you're saying that you don't just study about doing these extreme uh, health challenges. You're not reading about it. You're doing it. You're doing 100,000 push-ups. You're not reading about doing it. You actually had to do the first push-up. So uh, I, I like what you're saying. But give us an example of a task or a, a system or something that a leader would be afraid to execute. Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a specific example from yesterday. Uh, a leader was hesitant to have recurring one-to-one agenda-driven meetings with their direct reports. They thought that it'd be poorly received, that folks would say, I'm already so busy. I mean, think about this, When A boss, a CEO of a multi-million dollar company thought, I am hesitant to ask my team, my executive leadership team to meet with me once a week to discuss progress toward goals, to provide them feedback, to ask them for places where they're having success and to ask them, and to problem solve with them on places where they're struggling. That a leader of a multi-million dollar company would say, I'm afraid to do that because my team is so busy. I think they're going to tell me they're too busy, right? That is a problem, right? And so that's one example from yesterday of like, well, I said, well, how do you then manage performance? Well, I, I informally check in with people. I go, great. And let me guess, when you ask people walking by their desk or on a Zoom call, hey, how are things going? I bet they say something that sounds like this. Great. Right? Like, right. And he's like, yeah, they do. I'm like, got it. I go, that is not accurate feedback. I mean, that data, as corrupt as any data can be, no, nothing's, I mean, like, listen, even despite all the work we've done and all the time we spend talking about mindset and what we kind of, what, what we say Externally, be in a good mood is one of yours. Find a way is mine. There are always challenges. There are always challenges. And we have to be able to, to address those things. So that's a good example that came up in the last day or so. Having crucial conversations. I spoke to a leader recently who fired an employee by their own admission, the leader, 14 months after they should have been fired. 14 months. They avoided the conversation for over a year because they were scared of how the person would react. Well, that's not so bad. I, I can tell you about team members that I should have <laughs> terminated <laughs> five years before I actually did it. So. Yeah, I mean, it's like we, we, we avoid these things. It's, there's a fear there, how it's going to be received. What are people going to think of me? So it's, uh, it's problematic. So I'm curious, as a coach with this CEO who you said was uh, afraid to team members in on a weekly basis and have that one-on-one. -on -one. So what was your advice or what was your task to him to say, okay, you're going to do this and you're going to get back to me on, on how it played out? What was the step for that? Yeah, exactly. So it kind of speaks to the previous point around what the leader believes. I said, listen, if that's what you believe about this, I say, with all due respect, you're thinking about it the wrong way. Go. It is your obligation to your team to provide them ongoing support. It is your obligation to ensure that you are there for them when they need you most. Uh, that, that Letting them just kind of like blow around in the wind is, is actually poor leadership on your part. So let's change the mindset from this is going to be like a burden on them to like, this is actually what they deserve from me. Even if it's initially met with, how am I going to fit this into my schedule? That's fine. We can work with folks on that. You go, the second thing I go, you don't think that you deserve as a leader FaceTime with your employees every week. You don't deserve to know what's happening and what they're working on. 
I'm like, I think you probably do. And he was like, yeah, you're, you're right. I, I do think I deserve that. I mean, I do think that that's well within my rights as the CEO. And so once we were able to break through some of those obstacles, then it becomes the framing of it, right? Rationale is important. If your listeners take one thing out of this whole call, and I hope they take many, but we need to provide rationale for people for why we're doing things. Far too often, it's like, hey, we're shifting this thing. Everybody be ready for this starting Monday. People get whiplash. They don't know why this is happening. They're freaked out. Am I? Are we in trouble? Did we mess up? Provide people with rationale, right? Provide people with rationale for why it's happening. So with that leader in particular, we scripted out. I had him script. We sat on Zoom. He scripted for 15 minutes. What's the rationale for why we're going to do this? And I want you to, this is going to be an actual in-person conversation you're going to have with your executive leadership team. And you're going to share with them the rationale for why this matters. And he returned the script. We, he came back. He role-played it with me. It's another thing that's missing in so many coaching engagements. We're saying to folks, hey, do this thing. They're not prepared to do it. So we role-played. It was probably a B-. minus. We revised it, got back to maybe not an A+, plus, but closer to an A-. minus. And he was then ready to do the thing because he was able to then present it to his team in a way that was going to be well-received, in a way that was really clear, in a way that was abundantly clear as to why why this new shift really mattered. See, this is why I love my initial gut reaction to reading about you and studying about you and now asking you to do this because you, you hear a lot of leaders or, or authors, they're really good in theory. They're really, really like, you ever listen to those motivational speakers on stage who talk about the importance of leadership and they don't have one employee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do. I do. I, I, do. I mean, credibility. Where's the credibility here? Not that you don't have credibility, but you're not putting this into practice and you're not talking in theory. So you're telling me the theory, you're telling me the belief system. And then I'm like, okay, well, Michael, how do you implement this? And you're very clear. Step one, step two, let's role play this. Let's walk through this. And then you're backing it up with, it's your obligation to hold your people accountable. It's your, they deserve to hear from you. They deserve that private time with you. My gosh, this is so good. You know, um, I heard a speaker recently say, uh, live every day to the fullest, which is, you know, I think we're we're caught in this weird space and time where we're allowed to say things that don't actually mean anything, but because they sound like they are coaching or aspirational or inspirational, we're letting people get away with it. And my right. question is, what does it mean? What does that mean? What do I do tomorrow at 8.05 a.m.? to live my life to the fullest. Give me a non-example of that. Give me an example of doing it. And to your point, there's just way too much fluff out there that is meant to be inspirational. I'm not even saying it's bad. I'm not saying that folks have, have malintent, but it's not actually driving change, which is why so many of us have shelves filled with leadership books that do nothing more than collect dust because we're not actually getting into what is the day-to-day -day of this look like. So you came up with this name rebel culture, and I'm curious to know why. I mean, I get it from everything that you're saying. First of all, you look like a rebel. You sing in a rock band. You're a rebel. You got tattoos. So, so I get it. You got to justify the outward appearance to your message. So I get that. But um, so how do you build a rebel culture? Yeah, so I mean, look, you're right. There is a branding piece there. We wanted to separate ourselves. We weren't going to call it you know, Sonberg Consulting or the, you know, the Sonberg Group or something like that. That's not, 
that's not my vibe. We do have a different approach. We make folks crazy uncomfortable. We have, you know, we call folks on their stuff when they need to be called in their stuff. But really, I was drawn to the name Rebel because within the 65% of the workforce looking for other jobs and the nine out of 10 current employees dissatisfied with their workplace, we found examples, whether they were entire companies or whether they were just individual teams. It started with the schools we worked in when and some of the toughest, most uh, economically uh, you know, impoverished, violent, drug-laden cities in the entire country, that there'd be two schools a block from each other where people operated radically differently, like where in one folks were negative and gossipy and they, they seemed like they wanted to be anywhere but there and others where I'm talking about the adults and then by osmosis or intentionally, whatever, the students as well. And then there'd be a school around the block that everybody was really excited and they were on fire to be there and they were really passionate about the work they were trying to accomplish. We found that it was, that it was rebellious to say, I'm not going to blame our circumstances. I am not going to blame the fact that there hasn't been a, a successful school in this city in 50 years. I'm going to build the type of school and the type of environment where people want to be a part of it. And so when we started to look outside of schools, we found those. We found lots of different teams, again, whether it was an entire company or whether it was just uh, one kind of subgroup within a team. I'm thinking about a leader we spoke to in, in Los Angeles recently and some of their employees who they are underpaid and they all know it and they all stay. They could go to the advertising agency around the corner and make you know, 10, 15, 20, $30,000 more. They stay there because of the work they're doing feels so impactful and the boss is, is so supportive and the boss has incredibly high expectations for everybody. And so I started to say, like, man, it is really rebellious in this day and age to say, yeah, I know all the data. We're going to have a great company anyway. Um, and it's going to be awesome to work here. And you're going to want to work here for less money than the team around the corner, because that's how awesome our work is going to be. Well, you know, I have learned from mentors that having a purpose is a basic human need. So when people feel like their time at work isn't just for the paycheck, but that it is bigger than themselves, that it's impactful, that it's meaningful. And yeah, you, you, don't, you don't have to work at a school or at a, a drug rehabilitation center or at a hospital to feel that way. You can feel that way about an advertising agency or a pizza parlor, right? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, and, and it doesn't have to be. I think that's a, you make such a great point when we're not saying that everybody's got to be changing the world, right? But like you might be changing somebody's world, right? And the the pizza place that operates really effectively and folks are excited to be there, like they're making people happy, right? And they're providing a service that's like really helpful. And it, it's such a great point. I, I sometimes think leaders don't think, especially when they're in fields that are outside of the ones you mentioned, they think that they almost like don't deserve to tell people why this really matters. I was talking to the, the CEO of, a, of an SEO company uh, last week. And I said, I said, how many clients do you have? And he, and he told me, and, and then I said, well, um, how many, you know, I started to talk about clicks and things like that. I said, you know, you realize you are not directly, but indirectly, you are impacting millions of people. You know that, right? I mean, and all across different 
organizations. Some folks are are building buildings and some folks are are running schools and things like that that you mentioned. Some folks are doing work that feels, you know, more traditionally altruistic. Some folks are just trying to make a whole bunch of money. And that's great too. So you're impacting millions of people. You're changing the way people think about these different businesses. You're putting them on a stage that they weren't on before that. And you're giving them an audience they never had. I go, that's incredible. He never thought about his work like that. He never really thought to say that to his team. Look at the impact we're having because they're traditionally, you know, their goal is to make a lot of money. And that's, again, that's fine. He never really thought about it like that. And I think sometimes leaders don't think that they have the right to just get people like really present to like why what we're doing really matters and and how we're going to operate to get there. I love that because uh, it doesn't matter what the service is or the product. It could be a factory. It could be the most mundane or what others would consider the most disgusting kind of a work. But if it's a workplace where people show up and they feel loved, they feel valued, they feel like it matters that they showed up and somebody cares about them. Because the opposite of that means that people feel unvalued, that they're yelled at every single day, that they're demeaned, and then they go home and they take that to their family. They then turn around and, and treat their spouses that way or, or treat their kids that way. So every business can have that impact, doesn't matter what the product or service is. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. And what we often see play out too is the, in addition to the yelled at or, or treated disrespectfully, is the just basically ignored. The boss who walks in goes right into their office. They're in there behind a, a glass window. Nobody really knows what they do all day. The employees aren't getting any feedback, no kind of like kudos, no uh, like, hey, here, here are some places we can be more effective. Uh, and folks feel totally untethered. And they leave on Friday and they, oh, this was a, you know, it's like Groundhog Day. And that's, uh, you know, going back to one of my earlier points. I mean, people are spending 33% of their lives working for us, working for leaders. Um, we've got to make it matter. We've got to make it feel important. And I, and I read that in one of your daily emails that went out that, and you, I think you said it earlier during this interview that not only are people giving up 33% of their lives, but they're putting their dreams on hold or they're putting their objectives on hold to help the boss pursue his or hers. So that's a lot for us to take in. Yeah. I mean, look, when somebody comes to work for us, they are saying, I'm going to follow Wynn's vision. I'm going to follow Michael's vision, right? And for all the leaders listening, like, I'm going to follow your vision. Maybe those folks have no opinions and nothing that they're passionate about, but I don't believe that, right? Like, they're probably have, have lots of great ideas and lots of things that they'd love to do and lots of projects they'd love to start. When they say yes to us, in a lot of cases, unless they, they're doing stuff on the weekends and after hours, which I'm sure some folks do. I know some folks do. And one of the people on one of our teams has an incredible nonprofit that she runs. Awesome. But in most cases, folks are not following that other thing. They're giving up in some ways what their dream is to follow ours. We have to respect that and honor that truly. Actually, I love the words that you used in describing that. You said, carry the weight of that sacred responsibility. That was brilliant. I appreciate that. Thank you. See, I'm I'm reading your stuff, man. I'm I'm a big fan. <laughs> you truly are. It's a, it's really cool to to hear the words uh, sent back my way, and I appreciate that. Well, I I could really continue this leadership and culture conversation, and I had lots of other questions about 
positive and negative leadership trends. And but I, I want to talk about your work uh, because of having a son who is autistic and, and you sit on the board of an autism nonprofit organization. And uh, you, you mind if we switch gears in, into that before we start to wrap things up? No, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah, my, my son, Teddy, was diagnosed at about two years old. And it was a, a surprise because we didn't have any idea. We just thought he was, was slow to talk. And, and my oldest was kind of behind the pace when it came to um, his speech. So we thought it was just going to be like that. And yeah, we got the diagnosis. It hit us like a ton of bricks for about eight hours. My wife and I have pretty similar mindsets. What are we going to do about this? Um, and so I'm on the board of, of her nonprofit, actually. I mean, she started a nonprofit called Families for Inclusion. They educate students, they educate children on autism so that, you know, our, our worst nightmare, maybe not our worst nightmare, but uh, a fear we have is that Teddy starts school and he starts second grade in, in a couple of days and that um, he'll be stimming or screaming out of excitement or maybe pinching uh, the teacher because he's frustrated with her and that it will make him an outcast and that, and not just him, but kids like him and that that will cause, you know, a lifetime of feeling like I'm, I'm outside of, of everybody else. And I'm, I'm not accepted, right? Not that I'm not the same. Um, I don't think any of us are the the same, but, but that I'm not accepted. And so my wife's on this mission. Let's get to children as early as possible. Let's explain the different sounds, the different words, the different, you know, like what it feels like to include people who are different. Maybe somebody who doesn't respond when we say hello. Um, and we see it manifesting just in our, our friends' children that they'll be doing a fashion show and they'll say, Teddy, do you want to be in it with us? And uh, they know Teddy's not going to respond to them and they know he's not going to say yes. He's going to um, mostly not even look their way, but they've been trained in some way to, to include him and trained in, in many ways to not look at his behaviors as, as different or crazy or weird or uncomfortable. And just to say, Hey, that's just how, how Teddy reacts. So the, the culture work that we do and the coaching, I mean, that's my, you know, that's incredibly important to me, but Teddy's my heartbeat. And this, you know, you know we donate 10% of everything Rebel Culture makes to the nonprofit. We are focused on on autism and, and kids with disabilities at, at all times. Do you mind if I ask how old he is? Yeah, he's six and a half. He'll be seven in a couple months. And uh, it's just one of the coolest people I've ever met. And uh, he's never, never a dull moment. Wow. Wow. I love it. What you said, Teddy's my heartbeat. Yeah. 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 You got me crying on this end. So, <laughs> and your wife is a saint. You really married up, didn't you? Yeah. I'm, I don't know how I, I was able to pull that off. I got very lucky. And um, that's one of the reasons why my, my daily gratitude starts with uh, thanking the universe for my wife. Wow. Well, again, I could continue this on for a long time. And uh, I, I hope that we get to do another one of these real, real soon. Cause I, I, if you saw my notes that are spread out all over here, I have a probably, I'm not exaggerating, 30 pages of your daily printed. I like cut and pasted them and put them into a document and printed it. So I've got a lot so cool. to, to ask. And I'm just so uh, enamored by the work that you do and, and not just your messaging, but how you deliver it. 
just you know you as the messenger is great so thank you for that um and and um i'm wishing you well on your you're gonna do 110 k's how many have you done so far because we're like you know three quarters of the way through the year yeah so i'm at 60 i've slowed down a little bit wow you're in the last month yeah um i am uh i committed to running the philadelphia marathon in november and so i'm on a training program and sometimes that means i'm running for 45 minutes i'm working with a, a former olympian who's my coach and um he, he knows I have the 110K goal, and I, I'm very confident I'll be able to hit that. Uh, but right now, we're doing a, a training regimen. So some days I don't run. Some days it's core work. And so I've slowed down a little bit, but I'll start to pick back up as we start to get our miles uh, a little bit higher. So I will definitely keep you posted. And I that appreciate awesome. the encouragement. No, you know, thanks. I, I pride myself in being a connector. And as you're talking, I'm, I'm like writing down other notes. Ooh, I got to introduce Michael to uh, Charlie Ingle. Have you heard of him? Ultra runner. Oh, I'm not familiar with Charlie. Oh, but I love, love him. The love him. He, he ran across the Sahara Desert. So there you go. <laughs> um, and then I, I, I want to introduce when you're talking about your work with uh, children with disabilities. I want to introduce you to uh, my friends who run an organization called No Limit. So I, I'm, I'm like, you're going to be so tired of me in the next couple of days as i start to text you and connect you with all these people but no please don't ever think that i would never get tired i love the connections well i appreciate that thank you so much when i appreciate the, the hospitality and the and the kind words man i really do this is going to go far i'm thrilled and i can't wait for the feedback people are gonna uh think i'm a really cool guy because i introduced you to them so thank you for that <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. That's really kind of you, man. And it's been an awesome, awesome talking to you. Really, it's a great show. And I'm excited that, uh, that I get to know you. Well, just to, to wrap things up, uh, I'm going to read something that you wrote, something that you sent out. Sure. And it says, have you ever driven home on a Friday evening with a pit in your stomach because you missed a dozen opportunities to give team members feedback, to hold them accountable and to show them you value them. Just powerful, powerful message. And I'm taking that to heart. What opportunities have I missed out on to be able to let the people know in my world, my business world and on my personal world uh, that I value them. So th thanks for that. And absolutely, this is a big part of the business world as well. So you're making that connection and and I appreciate all of this so much. So more to follow, right, Michael? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, more to follow. And thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Michael.